Welcome to episode five of Leadership Lessons from the Front. My name's Tony Groves, and with me today is Darren Fallow. Darren has an impressive background, including 27 years in the Australia, in the New Zealand Police as a frontline officer, a detective sergeant, the child protection team, and with the organised crime unit. He spent almost two years working with the Australian Federal Police as a part of the Solomon Islands Policing Development Program, almost three and a half years as an educator with World Rugby in the Solomon Islands, and three years as an advisor with the New Zealand Ministry for Pacific Peoples. Darren, thanks a lot for being here today. Kia ora, Tony, and whakalofa lahi atu. Kia koe Tony. So, uh, nice to be here. Thanks for uh, inviting me. Hey, I'd like to start off with just learning a little bit more about you. What led you, or where did you come from, and then what led you to join the New Zealand Police Force? Yeah, I guess it was a long time ago. It was almost three decades ago, so you can tell how old we are. Um, so I guess for me, like our background, we're, um, we're from um, a Pacific Island background, an English background. So my dad is from this beautiful little island called Niue. And Niue is um, a small island, kind of right in the centre of Samoa, Tonga and the Cook Islands. And you'll find our little place. It's beautiful. And we're from a village called Hakupu, which is a really significant uh, village for for us, our family and uh, Niue people. Um, Mum, she's a uh, also an immigrant to New Zealand. Her parents come from... Liverpool and um, Preston, so Bootle and Preston, Lancashire is where my other family, other side of my family come from. So very staunch Pacific and English um, background. Uh, we grew up in, in central Auckland and I guess if I have a whakapapa uh, or a tūrāma waiwai, I would be in Mount Roskill in Auckland um, and grew up mainly around that part of the world. Um, so for me, I joined the police, I just turned 20 and... It wasn't really a conscious decision that I wanted to be a cop growing up. Um, it was probably a decision more the fact that I was, I'd left school really young. I was I just at school C, um, and left school pretty much after that. Um, wasn't an academic child. Pretty much went to school to play sport and eat my lunch. Pretty much. And, and, and that was what things I was good at eating and playing sport. Um, so I left school quite early. Um, and at the age of 18, I was, blessed um, or you could say the other way I had a young boy had a baby at the age of 18 so I really had to grow up really quickly so it was a really good decision I had a family friend who was in the police and he said man you, we know that you've actually got a really good level head on your shoulders you're really respectful you've got the attributes that we think would make a really good cop um, what you consider it um, be a great career move um, but also really good financially for your family long term. Um, I was earning a lot better money than I was earning as um, I was just doing export marketing, I think, at the time. And also got the opportunity to play rugby league and get time off to play, which was a really good bonus. Was that a part of being a police officer? You could play rugby league as well? Yeah, absolutely. And um, like inter-station rugby league, we played against other clubs, we played against um, the Australian police, for example, um, and um, in other, other club teams, really had some really good competitions and a really strong base, particularly in the Pacific Island police fraternity. Um, mainly, most of the guys there, where I was working in South Auckland, we all played um, senior league for various clubs in Auckland. Did you have any hesitation about joining the cops or...? 
Did you pretty much just go straight in? No, I was just full of excitement. As soon as I had the seed planted, yeah, it was my brain was just ticking how good it would be. And you know, people I'd known that were in the police that um, that I looked as as as, as role models, um, but also you know that I could find myself in a career that would um, that a long career that would suit me. For, for a long time and, and have but also another thing my um with that background my, my grandfather in Newey was the village constable um and also a soldier in World War One. So so to have that connection back to my granddad as being being a village constable um was quite significant for our family too. What was it like when you went to the academy? Was it what you expected? Did you find it easy? Was it challenging? It was oh it was it was, it was exciting. And it was um I was twenty years old and you're flying down and pretty much most of the people in, in our wing or recruit wing were about the same age. Look, I was probably the third youngest and range between about 20 and mid-30s is the latest, was the oldest. Um, and yeah, you're in the barracks and it's regimented life. Um, and I, I was happy with that. Yeah. I didn't mind at all. I loved the food. Like people used to complain about the food at the police. <laughs> I was like, my goodness, it was Excellent. <laughs> um, yeah, just learning lots of skills, lots of new skills along the way every day. And how long was the academy? Um, it was just shy of six months. Yeah. So that was tough because um, I had my young family in Auckland um, and the academy is in uh, Porirua in Wellington. So Wharton is if you could hop in your car and pop home for a weekend. Um, yep. and it was really expensive back in those days to jump on a plane and see the family. So it was only one trip back that I had for six months for three weeks in between. Um, so yeah, that, that part of it was, was, was really tough being away from my young family. I'd really like to talk today about Pacifica and leadership. Mm. And we had a bit of a conversation a few weeks back about your journey from police and moving into the role of a detective. Can you mm. talk about that in the context of a Pacific leader? Yeah, I, I guess um, <clears throat> within the police, you know, we're you know, Pacific. Back in the, when I joined in 1990, there weren't too many Pacific police officers, but the ones that were in there, were they were just significant leaders and role models. And um, I just think of a, a few people from the top of my head. We had um, Inspector Tyrone Lawrenson. These are all South Auckland Pacific cops. Tyrone Lawrenson, Sydney Afeta, um, Na Utanga, and, and, um, and we had younger guys like myself, but people like Fa, Fa Manuia, um, Vailua, Tepalavia, Phil Caressa. Um, the names go on. Of, and, and we, because we're such a minority, we all shared the same culture, languages. We were really close-knit and supported each other. When if we were individual, we'd probably get washed away. So we actually formed a really close connection and a network of Pacific police officers in South Auckland. How many do you think were in your little network at the time? Um, I'd say probably a good twenty, yeah, thirty in in South Auckland. What was what was it where where you decided to become a detective? At what point? What was the catalyst for for that decision? Basically, for me, it was um, I was a frontline cop for about seven years, based in Otara, Papatoi, Mangere, Papakura, uh, Wiri, so just the whole of South Auckland. And detectives—they were just the cool cats. They had these awesome leather jackets. <laughs> they wore the skinny ties. You know, they had awesome moustaches, and they were the cats' pajamas. And like to be honest, you know, we we 
and myself and, and the other guys around us, we, we, we held detectives at high esteem, but particularly detectives that came back into the front line um, as sergeants and came back to, to teach. And, and I, oh, you know, I'm not trying to be elitist, but um, they came back and taught a higher level of policing than what you do if you don't go to um, go yeah. through the track of CIB because it's yeah. just it's a, it's the next step of um, of criminal investigation. So I just think that the the value that some of these detectives had when they came back as frontline sergeants, they just the knowledge that they gave and the leadership they were able to provide was different. But like for me, I found it was that was what I wanted to aspire to. Were there many Pacifica detectives in, at that time? At the time, there weren't a lot of young detectives um, or detective constables, but not too many. So we were, there was quite a few, and I think of uh, Te Palapia, I think of um, Whawailua, you know, long, long time, no detectives, and we just we looked up to these guys as our matua, as and uh, Ron Burgess was another one. He was a really old, one of our kind of mentors. Mm-hmm. Um, so we looked up to those guys and they, and they affied us, they supported us. And, you know, as a, as a collective, it was, we want you guys to be, to achieve. And you have to achieve more than Balangis, than Europeans, because we have to be seen to be, we have to work harder to be seen to be mm-hmm. better because we get profiled as using our skin color for an advantage, using our size. Well, not me because I'm not massive, but <laughs> most of the boys are, you know, yep. they're significant, you know, all good, big rugby players. <laughs> I, was, I was kind of a halfback. Yeah. And the other guys were all the locks and the front rowers. So, um, you know, kind of got profiled for a Pacific Cup, for using a language, for being the same colour as most of the demographic, but also, you know, as, as the, um, you know, the boys that came in with a bit of muscle. So we wanted to buck that trend and, um, get as many of our Pacific Island police, the young guys, and bring them through to the CIB where they can make really effective change and uh, for, for the communities. And how long did it take from when you started the process or applied? What did you apply to become a detective? Yeah, so this is bad. this is a long time ago, mm. and um, it was you know, like talking nineteen ninety six, ninety seven, maybe. And it was it was it was kind of like. The, the, the kind of old school network, you know, yeah. and you got selected, you got, you got shoulder tapped to put an application to the CIB and there was, there was the piles of the applications. And so basically you went through and did they, yep, you're a good fit. You fit the mold or you don't fit the mold. You kind of get put back in the bottom of the pile. So it was kind of a bit of a, an old network. Yeah. Um, where the, Joined the CIB, got selected, but still a lot of people came through on merit. But there's always that angle of, you know, are you the right fit for us? We, we select you, you don't select the joiners. So how long did it take to become a detective? About three years. Yeah. From you first join as a, we call it a constable on trial. So you're a constable on trial attached to an investigation unit. And you're there for about six months and, you know, this is where you get to see if you enjoy the side of investigation, whether you fit within the team. Um, and from there, you get selected to um, do what you call your CLB induction course, the CLB selection and induction course in Pororua. And that's a, that's a four-week course where it's um, really intense, pass or fail, 80% pass rate. 
And if you fail, if you fail it, you're gone. You will start either back at scratch again, or you're just not invited back to CIB. So yeah. had quite a high um, attrition rate because pressure cooker course, like just full of law, full of not um, you know, all that core competency noise around um, detective detective work. So that was so when you completed your CIB selection and induction course, you then um, got the title of detective constable, and from there. You have to complete, um, there's like 20 on the job modules, you know, related to various subjects from fraud, homicide, sexual offending, um, violence offending, um, all of that sort of stuff, evidence. Um, so each module is about, I kind of say it's a month study. Some really clever cats can do them in a week and turn around and that kind of average about a month study per module. And then you book it into the next month, do your next one. Um, so then you get, once you complete that, then you then have to sit the detective qualifying exam. And when you sit the detective qualifying exam, that's again, that's a three hour exam on every subject and it's an 80% pass rate also. So it's, um, really again, a high attrition rate, but it's, it's rote learning. So if you put that hard, hard work, if you, you know, basically we're studying, on the selection course, but also when we start the final exam, we're studying from six in the morning till 10 at night every day for weeks and weeks before the exam. Um, cause we just know, and, and the, there was pressure like the Pacific boys and our Polynesian detectives, they put immense pressure on, on us and ourselves. And it was the rule was don't fail. Yeah. You know, don't let us down. So with there's so much expectation and the fear of failure from our own boys and girls, they was, it was immense. So we, we really pushed hard and worked really hard. So, like most of us, we were, we, most of us left school early. And so police has given us all this really awesome, particularly in the CLB that, man, we can do this. We can study. We're studious. We're academic. So that given us a really, you know, the, the, the level of aspiration was immense. I can only imagine the pressure, right? So, from what I understand, it was three years basically yeah. to become qualified, and right at the end of the three years, you've got that eighty percent pass mark on that three-hour exam. So yeah. all of that three years hinged on that one three-hour exam, correct? And then you've got the the expectations from within the the Polynesian community as well. Yeah. It was all out of love, yeah, because we're pushing each other, yeah. You know, um, it was all out of we want we want ourselves to succeed. You know, in this in this job, but not 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 just to succeed for the sake of it, but to succeed for the sake of our community, because we knew how much value being a detective adds to our Pacific communities. And sadly, the reality is, it's a lot of our people that are at the pointy end of um, high end crime. And this is where we can be there to um, to to take that take that role as um, you know as an investigator, but also as a liaison is someone who can who looks like the people that are being affected or yeah. the victims or offenders you know at least we you know we can empathize and we can speak the language um so it's it, it's yeah we, we found that it was it was not just an expectation but um it was a privilege for us to do that do you think you manage uh with, with that cultural connection to have that positive impact with the community that you're dealing with oh indeed it's you know as soon as you walk into a job or walk into walk into a um, situation and there's another there's you know if you if you've got 
the level of cultural competency around, and, and one of the things that we kind of have to kind of separate and differentiate around Pacific and Polynesians is that we're all not the same. And, you know, if I was giving advice to people in, the, in any industry or any sector, when you have Pacific people in your teams, please, we're not all the same. Um, and there's also the mistake that people make with, um, they, they lump Māori Pacific together. Um, and they're so two completely separate, although we we say that because we cry salt water, we're off the Pacific Ocean. And that's true, but we are all uniquely different in our language, in our cultures, our customs. Um, and, and just, just as an example, on Yuan, so I don't know those intrinsic, the, the, the idiosyncrasies with the, with the Samoan formal system, with the oral language, with the, um, so the Matai system. Um, so those are those things that unless you're Samoan and you're brought up in that system and you know that, you know, which most of our boys do and girls, then man, that's such a, it can break open so many barriers. Um, if you're in a, if you're Tongan and you understand the, the systems of hierarchy within the Tongan system and the, and, and how things work, um, and same with Cook Island. So I, I guess what I'm saying is that we're Pacific. We stick together because we are Tangata Olemoana. We are all of the same because we're a minority. Um, we, we, we do stick together and we do work hard for each other. But we still are so different, and I think that's probably my point: is getting to learn about the teams that you're with, and, and learn about their cultures, their families, and that will be a really. That's that reminds me of a conversation that we had um, a while back about when you're in the Solomon Islands. Uh, but before we get into that, how did you get to the Solomon Islands from being a detective here, well, at the time in Auckland? How did you get across to the Solomon Islands? What what was going on there? Yeah, so I guess if you cast your mind back to to a period between 1998 and 2003, um, there was a period in time in Solomon Islands where they called it the ethnic tensions, or um, for want of a better word, they had they had a they had a, had a yeah, civil crisis between two factions, and basically the governance, the systems of of democracy, the systems of um, you know justice, the wheels of justice had broken. And it was coming to a failed state. There were two warring factions that had brought the country to its knees. And the risk was that, um, there would be that domino theory effect through the Pacific. If there's a failed state in one region, that would weaken the rest of the economic security of the whole Pacific. And then obviously Australia and New Zealand by default. Um, so Oz, there was a small, um, 2002. So just prior to 2002, they did have a, they had the Townsville Peace Agreement, um, in which they had what we call the International Peace Monitoring Team, made up of police and military, who were there just in a, um, in a, in a kind of observer role, you know, but was a toothless tiger. So there's really not much they could do. They could see all the, everything that was going around them, all the warfare, the murders, the crime, the corruption, and nothing can do about it. Um, and that got, that, that program had stopped in 2002. Um, and then in two, um, what month was it? About October 2002. 
Um, New Zealand sent a small deployment of six uh, police officers over to Solomon's as a mentoring and coaching team uh, with the Royal Solomon's Police. So I was there, I, went, I got selected to go there in the capacity um, as a CIB um, trainer and mentor. Um, so once again, we had no, uh, we had no powers, we weren't carrying weapons, so it's just mainly um, working with, with the police um, and um, working with communities. So that, that's when I was first, so October 2002, and the, the, the ethnic crisis and the tensions were still going, and it was coming, it was, it was worsening. And in August 2003, there was the Ramsey, or the Regional Assistance Mission to Solomon Islands Mission, where it was a bilateral agreement with Australia and New Zealand and other Pacific nations to move in and take over the mechanism of government. So there's an intervening period where we were there on our own until August 2003 when Ramsey kicked off. Right, it's really interesting because I can see the connection uh, from what we were talking about just before, our ability to connect with, you know, from a cultural aspect with those we're working with. And I recall when you were telling me this story, you had a lot to do with the community, Mm. uh, not because it was part of your role, but because you chose to. Can you... Elaborate on that a little bit more on how that came about. Yeah, I, I guess there's two elements to that. And one, one element is the fact that, um, um, I have a family connection to Solomon Islands. Um, so I actually learned to speak the Solomon Islands pigeon quite young. Um, so therefore it gave me a really strong advantage, um, compared to the other New Zealand police who were trying to learn it when they got on, on, um, deployment. Um, and the other contributing factor is that I, um, I love to coach sports, um, play sport, particularly rugby. And in the Solomon Islands, although it's a Melanesian country, there are pockets of Polynesian outliers inside. I'm talking Renabalona, Sikayana, um, and Luanua, um, which is Anton Java, um, and all these, uh, Tikopia. So there's pockets of Polynesian outliers and populations within the Melanesian. So with that is the fact that because they're Polynesian boys and girls, they loved rugby. So rugby was actually, you know, when English were there, they colonised Solomons, they introduced rugby. And it was up until the 80s, it was a really high-profile sport um, until soccer came over. And so initially it was the Malaitan and Western province people that played rugby. But then the Polynesian boys, they go, we love this game. And we look, we see the All Blacks playing, we see Manu Samoa, we see Tonga, and fits in our blood. So basically the Polynesian boys and girls, um, they had taken over the rugby scene. And I naturally aligned with our Pacific and our Polynesian communities in Honiara and just began coaching the local sports teams, uh, rugby teams, from, from kids right through to the um, senior club teams, but more than anything in the police. So police, we had a really strong police team, but that came with real difficulty because they were kind of seen as, we don't want to play the cops, they're, um, they're violent. So it was, um, it was basically, it was, it was trying to change the culture of the police to bring a really strong culture of, of, of the um, values of world rugby into their into that 
and then therefore what a fault into community. You were saying that there was two factions basically within the the conflict. What, yeah. What can you tell me about? What were the two factions? So it's a really like, such interesting story, and, and it goes right back. You can go back, you know, a few hundred years for when when the British first colonised um, the Solomons, I guess. Um, and I, you know, not historian, so please don't hold me say this caveat there. But in in essence. It was between Indigenous island, Indigenous people from the island of Guadalcanal and people from the Indigenous people from the island of Malaita. And they're two, the two largest islands in the Solomons. Um, Guadalcanal is where um, the capital city, Honiara, is and um, ethnically different to Malaitan people. The British went there and, and had plantations going. Um, they did copper, the palm oil, um, everything. And they needed labour force, so they indentured labour for Malaita to work in infrastructure in Honiara. And as a result of that, they were given um, land rights to Guadalcanal that, that were in land that was that was seized from Indigenous Guadalcanal people. As you can imagine, there would be a little bit of tension. Um, and another kind of feature of that was the fact of matrilineal lines of ownership of land versus the patrilineal lines of ownership of land. Um, so when Malaitan people came onto the land, it was seen that, you know, we passed through our fathers or the Guadalcanal actually goes through the line of our mothers. So there was those differences. So to cut a long story short, there was, there always has been this underbelly of Guadalcanal people trying to get some recompense, get compensation to get recognition for land that had been dispossessed from them. And I imagine you can see that the world over where a colonising power has come and dispossessed an indigenous um, people of their land. There will be that that feeling. Um, so over several years, there were movements to um, lobby government, to lobby um, you know, international um, organizations to say we need to be recognized for this can you please do something and nothing happened um, and there's there's no recognition made and let's fast forward to about 1997 98 where a group of indigenous um, led by various people they actually started making noises and saying you know what we're now saying because we've had no help we've had no assistance internationally or domestically we're going to start, start taking powers into our own hands. And actually, from around the island of, of Guadalcanal, anybody who's not indigenous or ethnic Guadalcanal, they have to go. And so there were, there were generations of Malaitan settlers all through Guadalcanal who were dispossessed again of their, of where they lived and, and, um, roust, roust is a term, like, move, get out of our, out of our area. Otherwise, you no. Know, and you might face harsh, harsh and punitive corner action. And then, so that was the Guadalcanal, and it was the Isatabu Freedom Movement, it was called back then. I, and there were several leaders. Again, to cut a long story short, Malaitan people said, well, hang on, you're, you're, you're actually hurting our people, you're killing our people and you're dispossessing them. We need to now start to get a movement. And this is where the Malaitan Eagle Force was born and several leadership and, and, and within police, within government, um, and within the community, they said, yep, we're going to rise up and we're going to start our small little, not a militia, but our own Malaitan army 
to care for our people. And that was purely what they wanted to do, make sure that Malaitans weren't um, hurting that. So basically, it started from there. Majority of the police or the hierarchy and the police and people in what we call the field force, which was a paramilitary, when the police, they were mainly ethnic Malaitan. They pretty much taken what they could in terms of firepower and weaponry and and it was basically it then became a war between Guadalcanal, Malaita and country just fell into a state of um, of um, almost failed state and at this stage there were several attempts made to Australia to, to help out which were over several years turned down until it came to a crisis point when John Howard and Helen Clark and the other various leaders around the Pacific they enacted what was called the Pekatawa Agreement and there was a pact that was made in Kiribati several years ago saying if there's issues in the Pacific we're going to answer it as a Pacific region rather than rather than unilateral or bilateral now, the Pacific will solve Pacific problems. So that's what brought in effect um, the Ramsey solution, really. So how did you get selected for that deployment? Um, I, I guess mainly because I was um, completely familiar with Solomon Islands. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 already, I was already I had a really good understanding of the, of the language and cultures. Um, but also they one of the key risks over there was family violence, sexual violence, um, and it was an area that I had expertise in. You said earlier that you really love rugby, they love rugby. Yeah. And I know that you chose to get involved with the community, not as a part of Ramsey, but as Darren wanting yeah. to be involved in the community. How did that work out for you? Because you're assuming a bit of a leadership role there within the community. How did that, how did that work out? Yeah, so you know, kind of how things transpired is I got to know lots and lots of people, lots of locals, and, I, and my, my network was, was local people. Um, regard, they were Malaitan, they were Guadalcanal, they were, they were Renal Bologna, they were um, whatever, but the Kiribati community. Um, I was involved in them in some way, either coaching something or doing something with communities, uh, community policing. So I actually got to know people in in, in my tendrils kind of shoot it out to every little avenue of Honiara. Um, and it was, it was a Sunday afternoon and I'd gotten a, I got a phone call where I was living at the time and, and it was, it was a, it was a local, local guy asking me in, in Pigeon that, um, there's a, there was a fellow by the name of Harold Keke. And Harold was the leader of the Guadalcanal Liberation Front and he was kind of this mythical person. Who lived on the weather coast of the country and was responsible for murders and all sorts of atrocities. Um, so I got a phone call from um, from the leadership group. So just on that, sorry to interrupt. So he was the leader of that faction. How 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 many soldiers, so to speak, did he have as a part of his rebel army? In the vicinity of several hundred um, troops, you know, and, and really organised structures. They had leadership cells and hierarchy, and was um, well organised. So one day you get a phone call from somebody on behalf of on behalf of the, the rebel leader. Yes, yeah, so it was his um, want to be with his secretary, Dial Dial Tati, and he um, you know, says, Darren, you know, Harold wants to meet with you, and he wants to give you a letter to give to the commissioner, and also to give to New Zealand, Australia. He wants to surrender himself. So he that he contacted you. How did he know you? I didn't know him personally, but lots of people I knew, particularly in a particular part of Honiara that I had a strong relationship with. Um, there's, there's a local village there and I was, I spent a lot of time in that village 
and he had an association to that village. What were you doing in that village? Oh, I just went there and I just coached footy. I just went down to gardening, to fishing with the guys down there. Um, sat down and ate, ate food on Sundays. Um, so just that sort of thing. So because of your involvement within the community, obviously uh, that's why uh, Harold... Yeah, and at the start, at that time, there was no trust with the Solomon Islands police. It would have been he would have been at risk, severe risk of um, probably being murdered by police, or other factions within that Malaitan movement, or there would have been no natural justice. So, if he didn't know you, why did he choose you to basically hand his letter of surrender over? I, I, I guess just because you know, in the islands. The jungle dramas, we call it. Yeah. You know, we call it the, the, the coconut wireless. And everyone knows everything. And I know that I'd, I'd drive out somewhere and, you know, I'd go out to a particular spot, you know, 20, 30, 40 k's out. And they say, oh, yeah, Darren, we heard you were coming. You know, that sort of thing. And I guess when you do build those strong relationships with people in the community and that they see that you, you don't pose a threat, that you're actually there for really valuable and honourable reasons and you're there just for nothing else other than to learn about their culture and learn about, you know, I want to learn how to plant gardens and taro and cassava. I want to learn how to fish from a dugout canoe. Um, you know, I wanted to teach them how to play rugby. I can really see the impact of your leadership. I mean, you had a mission as a part of the Ramsey mission, but you chose to coach sport and be actively involved with the community to go out and talk, just hang out with them and had such a positive impact that word travelled about you, this one person within the deployment, uh, yeah. that made it all the way back to a rebel army leader. Yeah, yeah, and I guess it wasn't, Ramsey hadn't started then, so okay, it was still just New Zealand police. And to be fair, also Australian uh, police, no, they were there in a small capacity with a private um, organisation, just one of the mm-hmm. a contractor, so mm-hmm. they were there in other aspects. Um, so there's six New Zealand police personnel and there are a few Australian contract personnel and one AFP member living there. So it was, yeah. How dangerous was it? If there's just six of you in a country torn by conflict, Yeah. was it dangerous for you? Like, did you encounter violence as a part of your daily duties? Um, not, not, not so much. It wasn't overt, um, but you always knew that there were murders happening and every day you'd turn up to work and someone had been murdered, mm-hmm. someone had been abducted. Um, there were, there were displaced, um, you know, refugee camps. You know, we knew that people had been displaced from villages. So internally displaced people. Um, so we knew it was all happening around us. You know, you, you, every night you'd go into bed. We, we kind of lived in a little compound kind of, uh, west of Honiara up on the hill and every night from, from the valleys below there's always gunfire just just constant gunfire all night going over the, over the roof um, so it was, it was it was constant but there were no threats for us we were always aware and vigilant and took really strong precautions we had no fire, we had no weapons with us we had yeah. no firearms we had no mandate so we were just there um, at the consent of of the people really so when Harold the the leader of this rebel army reached out and wanted to meet with you to hand the letter over. What was going through your mind at the time? What did you feel when you were hearing this information? Because it was left field, right? You didn't expect it. Yeah, it was. And, and it was basically, you don't bring any police with you. You come on your own, um, no weapons, and you can trust us. So I, I went to my commander and I said, look, boss, what do you think? He goes, oh, that's not a good idea. And, and also cover the fact that I um, 
had to, so we had to drive about 15k's out of town, past Pornegi, which is a little beach, and then inland about another three or four k into a little village in there, and completely, you know, you were, we had no cover, there was, there was nothing. Um, I, you know, took the risk just because I, I trusted the people that he trusted. I trusted my safety was in the hands of people that I trusted in that community quite, quite implicitly. Um, but I also did have another colleague from the Australian Federal Police who I trusted implicitly also who had, who was part Indigenous Australian. So the threat was that if he was a European or Bailangi, that they would have seen that differently. But because my AFP counterpart was Indigenous Australian, he, he had a different perception also and was perceived differently. So it was, you you both yours and your colleagues' uh, cultural background was definitely uh, an advantage for you in, in this situation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So did you feel any fear leading up to, to this meeting? Yeah, absolutely. Um, what thoughts were going through your mind? Oh, the obvious one is you know, the risk to my safety, mm-hmm. the risk to the mission security, the the fan, what would happen. Yeah. Um, but once again, I... When I spoke to my commanders, I, now I have implicit trust in these people that I'm, that I'm safe. Um, so, but, but running out there and, you know, then running in to, to get these letters to give back to the commissioner, to give back to the, um, to the New Zealand government and the Australian government was, um, yeah, it was pretty, yeah, kind of put all of those fears and anxiety behind you for the, for the greater good. Did you actually meet the leader? He, no, he he was on there. Yeah, but he had probably about fifty of his soldiers there, and the secretary gave me the letters. Must have been quite a sight when you walk in out of the bush to fifty armed rebels. Yeah, yeah, and it was peaceful. You know, they you know, when you walk in there, guns were all raised, and as soon as they say, "Oh no, it's Darren's okay," that's all. So how do how can cultural awareness? help leaders lead their people we're talking like here in new zealand and, and other countries how can yeah and i guess if you, when we talk culture it's any culture or and culture is not defined by ethnicity mm-hmm. um culture can be defined you, you can a culture then you 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 know that whatever situation it might be there's a there's just um you know differences different cliques of people different whether they're from New Zealand, perhaps, or different values or beliefs. So as a, as a leader, it's, it's, it's understanding those people, understanding their families. Uh, for Pacific people, um, and I guess like in, in, in other migrant and minorities, it's knowing what the fears and anxieties that they have in terms of viewing authority. It's it's about knowing the stresses that they might have at home also and, and putting that empathetic lens on everything you do and even in terms of communication, making sure that the, the message you're doing and you're trying to communicate is you know, is communicated right. Because often as European or Balang, you might bark orders and you've communicated that what you want, but it gets lost in translation. So it's about that those communica- lines of communication to make sure that you know and that he knows or she knows you've got the same message in different cultures they can they can receive i guess instructions or authority differently to others right yeah so eye contact would probably be yeah. a big one as well right yeah so so i guess like for for us um for, for pacific we will we we won't look 
people in the eye mm-hmm. and we would, we would find it offensive to be stared at, um, to be berated, have fingers pointed at. I guess most people would, but particularly if you, you might think that you're getting disrespect shown to you when, when a worker or a colleague or a subordinate has their head down, and that's actually more a sign of respect for you in authority than they're not. So you might think, he's not listening to me, but because it's Aussie, he, you know, he's respecting your authority. Yeah, right. So, so how do you think that, that awareness can help leaders in the workplace get, you know, develop better relationships with their people and form, perform to a higher level? Oh, it just goes without saying that if you if you understand those cultures, if you can understand what makes those people tick, you can understand the stresses that they have in their family life, um, and you're empathetic to it, and you can help relieve that stress and those those stresses, you're going to get far better um, outcome. And simple thing is learning to say people's names properly. Go to the effort of don't make a nickname out of someone's full name. And, and, and shorten it or abbreviate it, learn how to say it properly. It's not difficult to just, to, to say someone's name and it means so much if you, if you went out and, and actually learned how to say someone's name. It's the simplest thing to do. Yeah, I can see it's showing that you value them as a person that I, you mean enough to me that I'm going to actually say your name the right way rather yeah. than just, oh, that's too hard. I can't be bothered no, with exactly. your name. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's, um, that's, that would be one of the first things I would say, just learn how to say our names properly. And it's, it's, it's a really, it's just a sign of, of, of that person who's not learning. It's a sign of their, of their emotional intelligence or their IQ that's, their EQ that they don't have. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're lacking in that. And it, and it shows lack of integrity if you don't get to learn those little things. So would be, would that be, uh, your first word of advice to people when we're dealing with other cultures with challenging names? Is it, get, get to learn them, and and or you know you can you can ask them what would you like to know what do your what's your family call you because uh, just for an example um, one of my good friends here in Christchurch her name is Nasi uh, Leval and that's a long word but so she 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 likes to be called Nas um, and you know it's not Nas it's yeah. Nas yeah so just those little things um, just and there's and you can find. Lots of places now to, to be able to learn. And it's the same, the same way you, you, you'd say Maori names, um, exactly the same context. Some, some, um, have different, um, ways of doing that, but it's, if you can just, what, what's some really good resource websites, um, in New Zealand, then one of them would be, um, like Ministry for Pacific Peoples. If you click into our website, mpp.govt.nz, we've got a whole resource section for nine Pacific languages. And which will teach you how to say the language in particular, whether it's Samoan, Tongan, Cook Island, Kiribati, Rotuma, Nui, Tokelau, Tuvalu, Fiji, Tonga. It will teach you those, those small language tips and it will teach you some of the cultural differences of each of the languages and each of the ethnic groups. Um, yeah, so just that would be my first advice is simply. I can see how effective your leadership was. Looks reflecting back on what you've been talking about today, it's those seemingly little things. And although they appear to be little, like pronouncing somebody's name the right way or Mm. taking the time to learn about their culture, Mm. their language, or just some words of their language can really go a long way. Like when you're in the, in the Solomons, those little things 
seemingly little things had such a massive positive impact yeah. that it went all the way to a rebel army leader mm. who wanted to, he called you by name to hand his uh, surrender yeah. to. And um, yeah, I really appreciate uh, the time and the insight that you're giving. I think there's a lot we can all learn from being a little more aware and how to better connect with people of mm. all cultures. It's yeah. just because this is the way I communicate or you know, the way yeah. I've been brought up doesn't mean everybody else is the same. Yeah, exactly. And on a, like if you're on a big work site, for example, you have, you know, you know, lots of particularly Pacific Polynesian um, employees. Now we celebrate, or each one of our, we celebrate a Pacific Language Week. You know, there's nine of them that we celebrate each year. And right now it's um, uh, Cook Island Language Week. Um, and then it will be, um, we've got New Wayne Language Week coming up. So it's, you know, so you could celebrate each of the language weeks in your workplace and simple things like on your internet and your emails, you know, just sign off or, or learn to say taro falava or, you know, malo lava in the salmon or malo lele, you know, just at the workplace. Celebrate those little things. You know, we used to have, um, when we were in the Solomons and we had all of the Pacific nations um, deployed there, the police were there. So we'd have, um, cultural, cultural nights and all the nations contributed. It was, and the New Zealanders and the Australians particularly got so much value out of, of, of that. So th- just those little things. And once again, you can go to any of the, uh, our, our ministry website and you'll find the dates for those language weeks. You can download all the language resources. Um, so it's really, really cool. But mostly ask your people that work for you. What do you want to do? Would you would you be keen to teach us some like even before work? Let's start with a with a um, with a lotu or a prayer. You know, would that would that add value to your day? You know, things like that. Hey, thanks a lot, Darren. I really appreciate you taking the time to be here today. There's a lot that I've taken away myself, and I'm sure people listening have taken a lot away. And again, just thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Problems. Thanks so much. Appreciate it.